Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, hear the word of the Lord. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I don't know whether it's as common here, but oftentimes during our years in Mexico, people in our church would ask for letters of recommendation from the pastor. And sometimes these were mere formalities, and they just needed some application they had. They just needed to have it on record. It may be that no one was going to read it. They just needed to have it. And in those cases, sometimes I would say this. Would you just please write it for me, and I'll sign it, and then you can take it. Other times, I would go to my secretary and say, Oh, so-and-so needs a letter of recommendation Would you call him, call her, write the letter of recommendation because it needs to be in good Spanish and and so you have native Spanish. Would you write that for me and I'll look it over and then I'll sign it. Other times when it was something more serious and I really wanted to put effort into it and think through my recommendation, I would write it and then I would give it to my secretary and say, would you Mexicanize this for me? Because Mexican, ha- Mexican Spanish and Spanish in general has formalities that we no lo- longer have here and ways of saying things. And so she would then Mexicanize it and then I would sign it. Now let me ask you a question. Um, are those letters... Oh, and one more thing. I never did this with a secretary. I never dictated, but now I do. I do it to my phone because I'm so bad at typing on the touchscreen that I'll often dictate letters or dictate texts. And sometimes I do that actually on my computer as well because I can speak faster than I can type, particularly on a phone. Now, let me ask you a question. These different forms of communication, are they from me? Are they my letters? All of them are, aren't they? Why? Because I sign off on all of them. Even if I didn't create every word of them, even if I gave someone else some some, uh, authority to speak for me, I read them over and I signed them and they were my letters. Now, we're coming to a book of the Bible, uh, 2 Peter, which has a very interesting history in the church. And throughout history, one of the things that has caused some consternation regarding 2 Peter is that if you will read 1 Peter... And then you read immediately Second Peter, they sound very, very different. The vocabulary sounds different, the style of writing sounds different, the focus sounds different. And if then you sit down and read Second Peter and Jude next to each other, we looked at Jude at the beginning of this year, you will say, wait a minute, these seem to be repeating themselves. Uh, They seem to be saying some of the same things, sometimes even with the same expression. So it looks like... Peter depended on Jude, or Jude depended on Peter, 
And then if you notice the, the familiarity in Second Peter with Roman religious and philosophical concepts and the use of Roman religious and philosophical terms in Second Peter, you might say this is a very odd sort of letter from the Apostle Peter. So some, some have come to the conclusion that Peter didn't write it at all. And so you will find many that come to that conclusion. But before we come to that hasty conclusion and not ignoring these differences and these unusual characteristics that we find in the letter, we need to take three things into account. The first thing is this, and that is the extent to which ancient writers used secretaries. That was the common way of writing a letter. And the secretary could have absolutely no input, simply writing down word for word what the other person, what the person dictating the letter said, or sometimes the, the, uh, the secretary was also an editor of sorts, particularly if it was a bilingual sort of situation, like in my case, where although I spoke Spanish and, and had been there for many years, there were still some aspects of the language that a secretary could help me out with. So that's one thing. We need to take that into account. And this is apparent in Scripture. If you look at, for example, Romans, this is not some sort of secret. Romans chapter 16, verse 22, we've been reading this letter of Paul, right? And then all of a sudden, in verse 22 of Romans 16, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter greet you in the Lord. So here the secretary identifies himself and said, I send you a greeting as well. And if you look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, or verse 12 rather, at the end of the first letter, all of a sudden, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. And so Peter says, I'm using Silvanus to write this letter. So it's probable that he used a a secretary for this second letter as well, which could explain some of the complicated Greek uh, ideas and Greek sentences that we find here. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we ought not to underestimate the ability of people without formal education to learn other languages, to learn other philosophies, to learn other cultures, and to understand them well enough to interact with them. It is kind of an elitist argument against Peter that says, Peter, he was just a Galilean fisherman. So how could he ever learn to write like this and interact with these concepts. That's an elitist sort of approach to Peter, which gives him very little credit. Peter, we know, surprised the educated with their degrees. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13, Peter and John and the apostles spoke before the the religious leaders who had their, their degrees on their walls. And it says here, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so um, they were astonished that this simple Galilean fisherman 
was so knowledgeable and eloquent in the scriptures. And the third thing we need to take into account is this. Different situations call for different writing styles. And if you, if you compare your texts to your, your, your friends with a letter of recommendation, with an essay written for a school, or a poem that you wrote when you were feeling down or feeling happy, it would look like different persons wrote these things because the occasions were so different. Now, what was the occasion of First Peter? In First Peter, the churches of north-central Asia Minor were being severely persecuted. So, Peter wrote to them and said, Follow Jesus in the footsteps of suffering and faithfulness. That's the message of 1 Peter. Now, towards the end of his life, Peter writes apparently those same churches, but the situation is very different. Now the threat is not from without. Now the threat is from within. Now they are not focusing on persecution from others. They are focusing on false teachers, false prophets, who have risen among them from within and are distorting the gospel. And whenever the gospel is distorted, Christian living gets distorted as well. That was a new threat, a different situation. And so we would expect a letter directed to that different situation would sound very different. And it may be, the the scholars go back and forth on this, did Jude depend on Peter or did Peter depend on Jude? And right now they're saying, well, Peter depended on Jude, maybe 20 years down the road, they'll say, no, Jude depended on Peter. But, but however that may be, it may be that Peter knew the letter of Jude and found this to be useful because they were, they were both combating the same sort of thing. False teachers who had risen up in the church, distorting the grace of God, distorting the gospel, and distorting Christian morality. And so, those are the things we can take into account as we find some unusual characteristics about this second letter of Peter. So let's, let's get into the text now, after that somewhat lengthy introduction. And we find that it breaks down, perhaps, in talking about the Christian's faith in the first two verses, and then the Christian's standing in verses 3 and 4. Now, Peter does something interesting here, and... We don't know why he did this exactly. It's curious, and there are all sorts of conjectures, but he introduced himself as Simeon Peter. Simeon Peter. Now, Simeon was a very common Hebrew name, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, Simeon, and that was, that was his name. But he didn't usually use that. Usually we hear the Greek version of that, which is Simon. But here he used the Hebrew version of his name, Simeon. That's what his parents would have called him. And then he used the Greek version of his nickname. Jesus had called him Cephas in Aramaic, which in Greek is Petros, a rock. And so here he uses Peter. So he uses the, the Hebrew first name and then the Greek version of his, his, uh, his nickname that Jesus gave him. Why did he do that? I don't know, all sorts of conjectures about that, but they're his names. He can do whatever he wants with them, I suppose. But it's rather creative here. We don't find this combination elsewhere. And he calls himself here a servant, or it could be translated a slave, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, well, the first one is humble and the second one is authoritative. 
But if you think about what servant is and what apostle is, both of these words put Peter under authority. A servant is one that must obey. An apostle is one who is sent. So here he is saying from the get-go, he is saying, I am doubly under the authority of Jesus Christ. I am placed as one who will obey him and is one who will go when sent by him. Now I want you to notice something. Peter loves to do this in this letter. He loves to put two related ideas together, related words together, nouns together. And here he has servant and apostle. And you will find we have these pairs throughout. So keep an eye out for these pairs of related terms that go together. Now, he, relate, he, he identified his readers as those who have obtained. The idea is, is obtained by lot. Um, the idea was that it fell to them, not in the sense of, of gambling, but it, it, was, it, it fell to them. It wasn't their doing, so they obtained it. They didn't achieve it. They obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Equal standing with ours. Now, who are, the, who are they and who are we? So, ours, in this case, would be the original disciples. And Peter, who is quickly, as we will see, to pass off the scene, he is saying, you who come later, you who are younger in the faith, he's second or maybe even third generation Christians, as Peter is getting ready to die, he's saying, you have a faith, you have received a faith that is of equal standing to ours. And that's the case always. In every generation, if there is true faith in Jesus, that faith in Jesus is a gift that is of equal standing to the faith of the apostles. Sometimes we look back at the the apostolic church and say, wow, that's real faith. And it was real faith. But guess what? In every generation, true Christian faith is real faith of the same stature as the faith of the apostles. Now, um, the creation in the history of the church of separate and superior categories it militates against this equality of the faith. In the church, during the years once it became legalized in the Roman Empire, and then even even supported in the Roman Empire, and then even the official religion of the Roman Empire, the quality of the, the Christian living deteriorated, and they started looking back to the old days to the old days of the martyrs that they began to call the saints. And that's where the saints came from. They became this separate and superior category with a different level of faith. And that's not what this says here. It says those who believe in Jesus have a faith that is of equal status. Sometimes it's uncomfortable when people talk to me and they talk to me as if, as if I were of some sort of different category assigning me uh, a place among the clergy instead of among the laity. And I never use those terms, but sometimes people do with me. And they say, well, well, would you pray for me because you have, you have a better in than I do. Like, um, not if you have faith in Jesus. If you have faith in Jesus, we have the, the same advocate before the Father. We have the same standing. So, so please don't look at me in that way. Now, um, the source of this faith... It says here, uh, equal standing, a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness. And by the way, righteousness here probably means the emphasis is on fairness. That is to say, there's no distinction. 
Uh, in Paul, righteousness is the gift of a right standing before God. Here it is probably the quality of God's fairness, His equity, His justice in, in giving all Christians the same faith. But it says here that it is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this has caused a number of uh, of folks, the, 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 this statement, which is so bold, has caused a number to try to interpret this in a different way from what it apparently says. But I want you to notice um, that this is parallel to what we find in verse 11. In verse 11, it says, For in this way there, you, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, in verse 11... Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is that talking about one person or two? It's talking about one. It's, it's obvious there. And that is the exact same construction that we have in verse 1. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the question is, is that talking about one or two? And if it's the same construction as we have in verse 11, then we should conclude that it is talking about one. Not two. It is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, the, the way it is in the, in the original, there is one definite article. One definite article. What's the definite article? The. And so what it says, rather literally, would be the God of us and Savior, Jesus Christ. One definite article. And so this is one of the, the clearest and boldest declarations of the fact that Jesus is God. Now, you may or may not believe that Jesus is God. I urge you to believe that unto your salvation. But whether or not you believe that, what is clear is that this is what the New Testament teaches about Jesus. And here is one of the clearest examples thereof. Now, um, where Roman letters had a health wish, a wish for good health, Here, what we find in the New Testament are wishes for grace and peace, sometimes mercy, but grace and peace was the the combo. And here again, we have two terms that are put together. Grace, favor, peace, shalom, well-being. May it be multiplied to you in the knowledge... Knowledge, now hold on to that word, because throughout this series, you are going to hear knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And that's not accidental, because here he is giving a preview of the, the, uh, the battle that's going on between the false knowledge, the incorrect knowledge of the false prophets, and the true knowledge of God. Now, notice something here. He says, May it be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now here, there are two definite articles. It is of the God and of Jesus, the Lord of us. So now I ask you, is this talking about one or two? Now it's talking about two. Now this is remarkable. This is remarkable. So in verse 1, we have our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we have the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. In two verses, right next to each other, we have Jesus being presented very clearly as God. And then in verse 2, we have Jesus distinct from God. And so what we have in these two verses is the basis of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. 
that there is one God, and that God exists as more than one person. Here we see two, but we find out in other places that he exists as three distinct persons. And we have it right here in these verses, the basis of this doctrine. Now, he goes on and he says, His divine power has granted. Hold on to that word, granted. What is When, when something is granted, what is it? It's a gift. It's a gift. So, His divine power has granted to us, and now this us changes from being the first generation of Christians. Now the us is is universal. It's to us Christians of any generation. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life and godliness. Here again, we have two words together. And the question always, or often in these words, when we have these pairs of words, are these words, are these words describing each other? Do they modify each other? Or are they two separate things? Did he give us all things we need for life? And also, in addition to that, he gives us all things we need for godliness. That is, he keeps us alive and he enables us to to be reverent toward him. Or should we put these together? All things for reverent living. All things for godly living. I don't think we have to decide that question, but you'll see that sometimes he's using these two terms to describe each other. I want you to notice here, how does that knowledge, or how does that all, how do those all things come? Through the what? Verse three? Through the knowledge. The second time already. Through the knowledge of him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Here again we have glory and excellence, another pair of words together. Or it could be translated by His own glory and excellence. By means of His glory and excellence, or He called us unto His own glory and excellence. Now, we are finding that here Peter is beginning to use some some terms that were common in Roman religion. And what he's doing is he's using terms that would have been common in the the milieu of the day, but he's using them in distinctively Christian ways. This word, this word godliness, was the basic word that was used for religion. Religion. Generic religion, and that would have been pagan religion. And now here he's using it, he's saying, no, we're going to take that word for ourselves. And we're going to define it differently as reverent living before the one true God and Jesus Christ. And here he says uh, that he called us by or to his own glory and excellence. And here the words were used in Roman uh, philosophy as as virtues of, of, of a good Roman citizen. But there are also words that show up, and this is why I read Isaiah 42 earlier, they show up in Isaiah 42 describing God in the Greek version of the Old Testament that was used in the first century. And so here, it's a very clever move. It's a very clever move on Peter's part. He's using words that were common in Roman religion, but also in the Greek version of the Old Testament, they apply to God, they describe God, glory and excellence, and he's saying that these, this glory and excellence is uh, by the one who called us. Now, the one who called us could either be God the Father or it could be Jesus Christ. If it is Jesus Christ, 
Here's another indirect association of Jesus with God using words that describe God to define Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something here. He says that we have everything we need. And this has granted, the tense of this has granted, He has granted us and we still have it. That's the idea. He's granted us and it will never go away. This is our permanent possession. So we have everything we need for reverent living before God according to the knowledge of Him. In other words, to say it very plainly, the Christian life is possible. I have had people say to me, you know, Larry, I tried this this Christian thing. I, I tried to be a Christian and it just didn't work for me. It just didn't work for me. Now, it says here that the, the working of the Christian life depends on two things. It depends on God's power, and it depends on our knowledge. So if it's not working for us, where do we think the problem would be? Is the problem with God's insufficient power? No. Well then, that leaves one option, doesn't it? It, it has to do with our deficient Knowledge, And so, if the Christian life is, is not working for you, if you don't have what you need for the Christian life, it's not a lack of God's granting, it's not a lack of God's power, it's a call to you to say, you need to grow in your knowledge so that it might work for you. Because everything you need is available to you to live the life to which God has called you. Now, he also says here, that He has granted His magnificent promises. Verse 4, By which, by which, that is, by His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Here we have a pair again. Precious and very great. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What? Here is Peter's absolute boldest move his riskiest move of all. To say that through these promises, which promises? The promises we have throughout the Gospels. Through these promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. That that is a startling statement. And one that is very, very disturbing on the surface of it. Particularly in light of the fact that this was a common idea of the day in the, the Greco-Roman religions. The idea was to, was to, to strive with, with these qualities that are mentioned here of, of godliness and of virtue and of moral excellence to try to achieve participation with God. That was the goal. And here Peter is so bold as to use this term and apply it to Christianity. And to say that we might become partakers, sharers, communicants in the divine nature. Now, um, this startling expression cannot mean, cannot mean a confusion or a fusion or a transformation of human nature so that that human nature becomes divine in some sense. It cannot mean that. Um, Why not? Because it's in the Bible and that concept is not in the Bible. That would be a flat contradiction and it wouldn't even go with the call that Peter has in the rest of the letter as we will see. 
And notice that the word is partakers, communicants, participants, sharers in the divine nature. What is being described here? What's being described here is communion with God in the strongest of terms. And I want you to notice something. Even in Jesus Christ, whom we have already seen, is human and is divine, there is no confusion of human and divine natures. This is not a fusion. This is not a mixture. This is not a a combination of two natures that becomes something different. Not even in Jesus. Not even in Jesus. The closest contact of divinity and humanity. Not even in Jesus. Is there a blurring of the distinction between human nature and divine nature? So much less would there be a distinction or a blurring of the distinction in our communion with God. Rather, uh, Jesus experienced and is that perfect communion between human and divine nature. And that's the calling to us. That's what's, what's given to us as well. Communion with God. There are other texts. They say it differently. But listen to some of these texts. And you'll see that this is not out of accord with other, other places in the New Testament. Romans 8.9 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Galatians 2.20 It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So you see many verses in Scripture, in New Testament, they, they, they point to the closeness of this, this communion, this fellowship that we can have with God. But I want you to notice something remarkable here. Striking here. And this is the, this is the bold move of Peter. The, this participation or communion or sharing with God is not the goal of the Christian life, but the starting point. And this is the bold maneuver here to take a, a, a Roman religious concept and completely Christianize it. So you see here, look at verse 4 so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, something in the past, having escaped from the corruption, the decay that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, for the Romans, that was the goal, eventually, to get to God, to have communion with God, to share with God in His, in His, in His divine nature. But here, Peter is saying, that's the starting point of the Christian life. This is what is granted to us in the Christian life. We are given this communion, this sharing with God, this participation with God from the beginning. And here, we see in stark terms the contrast between the world's religions and the Christian faith. What are the world's religions saying? The world's religions make communion with God the goal of human effort. And they, they all have their, their different, different ways to get to God. They have their, their list of rites and rituals and their lists of, of laws and norms and, and pilgrimages and sacrifices and so on. And the idea is if you will really try hard, if you really try hard and you will follow these rules and these laws... And then you will follow these rites and these rituals and these sacrifices that that eventually you can make it to God. Eventually you can have communion with God. And humanity in this futile effort tries and tries and tries and never gets to God that way. And then in Christianity we have exactly the opposite. 
It's not a question of humans striving up to God. It is a question of God coming to us. God taking on our nature, becoming one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God in human form, to live, to die, to rise again, and to come once again in glory for all who believe in Him. Granted to us, granted to us, granted to us. That's the message of the Gospel. All of this has been granted to us by God. Now, if we stopped right here, we might conclude erroneously, well, world religions are all about human effort and Christianity is all about doing nothing and just letting God do everything. But that's not what the rest of the letter says. It doesn't say, okay... God has granted you everything you need, so sit on your hands and do nothing. While the enemies attack from outside and while the heretics arise and distort the gospel from within. No, that's not the message. This letter is a call to action. But notice when the action comes. The action doesn't come to get to God. No, God has come to us. The action comes after God has come to us. After He has given Himself for us after He has granted us everything we need, then there's the call to arms, then there's the call to action, then there is the striving. And what is the basic message we're going to hear through the rest of this letter? It's this. No. Not N-O. K-N-O-W. No in order to grow. So don't sit on your hands. Don't sit still. That's not the call. The call is to receive with open arms, with faith in Jesus, all that He has granted to us in Him. And then, to know, in order that we might grow. Let's pray. Our God, this is, this is amazing that You would give to us everything we need for life and godliness. That You would grant Your your magnificent promises so that we could be partakers of your nature. And we are as we have your spirit, as Christ lives in us, as we live in him, as we abide in him and he abides in us. Lord, there is this this intimate communion with you. And we thank you that that's not the goal, that that's the grant. That's what you've given us already through faith in Jesus. And I, I pray that all of us would have that communion with you, that that you would grant faith to all that are hearing this message and the the preaching of the Gospel today, that we might begin that that life of communion with You. And we pray, O God, that as we read this letter, as we go through our days, that we would not be overwhelmed by the the attacks from without, that we would not be seduced by the, the errors from within, but that we would, having been granted everything we need, that we would know and that we would grow. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.